Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, Alice Fraser is back. Love talking to Alice Fraser and Alice is one of those people who a lot of uh, folk who have messaged me on the Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash philosophy. We're doing our little drive to 5,000, which is we can get uh, $5,000 worth of subscribers per month. We're going to go to two episodes per week. Uh, of this podcast, there'll be one brand new guest per week and one returning guest for one of these sort of chats per week. We're going to have a little pause from the two episodes a week for a couple of weeks because, to be honest, it's pretty hard work uh, getting it all together. And until we get to that Patreon level, we can't really afford to do it. So there will be some uh, double episode weeks going up to that 5,000 mark. But if we can make it to 5,000, then uh, we will go to two episodes, two brand new, unique episodes every single week uh, that's enough money to pay podcast mike to put it all together particularly in these times when we're doing it down the line it's a lot of extra editing and uh, making sure that it sounds like we're in the same room when often we're on a dodgy internet connection and um, obviously arranging the guests and all that stuff and of course james fosdyke who all, does all our brilliant and original art for this podcast so if you want to support this podcast I know I am banging on about this a lot, but I appreciate those who have signed up. I know it's a terrible time and there are a lot of people who are completely unemployed right now. I am one of those people, so I have great empathy for those who are doing it uh, so much harder than I'm doing it right now. But if you do have the capacity to support the podcast, the place to go is patreon.com slash philosophy. Uh, you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. Well, it's a dollar US, so depending on where you are in the world, you've got to do the calculations on that. But as little as a dollar US a month to help us support put this podcast out now uh when you do that you can also send me a message and i will respond to all of those messages and it's been brilliant getting those messages and people sharing their memories and insights and requests for guests and i have written all of them down and i am going to follow all of them up i appreciate that but one of the names that kept coming up for a return episode was alice fraser so for those who have requested it here it is. If you don't know Alice, if you haven't heard the first episode that she did, I really recommend, this is one of those ones where we talked a lot about her background and her story and some of those things are referenced in this podcast. So I think probably it's one of those ones where it might even be worth going back and listening to the first one first. So you know some of the things that we're referencing in this one. Um, you'll enjoy them both a lot. She's absolutely brilliant. Uh, she has a great podcast herself called Last Post on the Bugle Network, which is a uh, of course, where Andy Zaltzman does his uh, fantastic podcast, the podcast that John Oliver, you might have heard of him, used to be a part of as well. So, you know, that's a sign of absolute quality. So go and check out her podcast, The Last Post. And she has a couple of Amazon Prime specials that we mention and talk about in this as well. So you can go and check them both out on Amazon Prime, I guarantee you. I was in the audience for one of them. Um, just a really, you know, brilliant show, heartwarming, heartbreaking incredibly uh cleverly constructed um she's doing amazing work alice so uh follow her online alliterative uh you know um and uh, just get on board in a general sense for alice hey uh, if you haven't listened to uh kurt fernley's episode from last week i do highly recommend that i love kurt fernley he's an absolute legend and uh um it's one that uh you know look they're all great <laughs> and i don't say that in a boasting way because they're all great because of the guests and uh, I've never done one of these that I walked away from at the end and didn't think that I had learned something from it or got something really intimate from the person I was talking to. So, you know, I, I, I'm, it's like choosing between my children. But that Kurt one, I just, you know, it's one of those conversations that I just felt better coming away from. So I do highly recommend you check that out as well. I have other podcasts, uh, more nonsense than this. Tofop 
is the name of a stupid conversation I've been having with my friend Charlie Corson for 10 years. And now, uh, Thursday, July the 2nd. So tomorrow, if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, uh, 10 years since we did our very first podcast. And of course, this podcast would not exist without that show. doesn't mean you'll like listening to it. It's not for everybody. We talked a lot about Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and the size of our toes this week. So you know what? You'll be able to make your own judgments whether that's for you or not. I also have another podcast called Fofop where I talk to other comedians. Uh, there are 299 episodes of that, uh, including about 70 plus with Dave Anthony, but a bunch of really hilarious comedians. You can go and check those out, Fofop. And then, of course, Charlie and I have an AFL podcast where we kind of talk about AFL, but mostly we just talk about nonsense called Two Guys, One Cup, an AFL podcast. So that's all the plugs. Thank you so much uh, for listening to this episode and enjoy Alice Fraser. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and uh, here's what we're doing during these unprecedented times, these times without precedent. I have not, well, previous to Tony Wilson, Tony Wilson, the author, if you've not heard that episode yet, it was the first episode I've ever done of Willosophy with a brand new guest over the internet, over the World Wide Web, uh, as the young people call it, the information superhighway. But what I was really doing was I was catching up with previous guests, uh, previous people I'd done one-on-one interviews with, and I thought, well, you know, we already have a rapport, we already have an intimacy, that way... I can probably recreate that over the power of the information superhighway and everything will be fine. And as it turns out, we're now in uh, times where I I don't have a job. I'm an unemployed stand-up comedian for the first time in 25 years and I've had to start hustling again. I've had to start putting everything (laughs) together myself again and create a new world. So what we're aiming towards, if you hit us up on the Patreon, patreon.com slash willosophy, if we get to the $5,000 mark, uh, we will be doing regular two episodes of this a week. And one of them will be a brand new episode with a brand new guest. And one of them will be a catch up with a previous guest because people have been loving uh, these catch ups that I've had with previous guests. And if you hit me up on the Patreon, you can actually request either a new guest or a previous guest to appear on the podcast. And my next guest does not know this, but I will tell her something very uh, excellent, I think. In fact, I would be pleased to hear this if it were me in the reverse situation. The most regu- requested return guest on my Patreon. So I don't know what that says. It maybe just says that her fans are the sort of people who are willing to pay for content. But <laughs> that's a good thing. And I appreciate that. So uh, this is how the podcast always starts. I ask the guests who they are. So who are you? I am Alice Fraser. Welcome back, Alice Fraser. It's so nice to see your face again. And it is Nice to have you on the podcast. And I am not just saying that. There has been a huge amount of people who've been requesting you as a return guest and wanted to hear what you were up to and hear all about the uh, a number of projects that you are doing. But we were just talking before we started about the idea of the hustle. And I was saying that as someone who has had the privilege in comedy of having regular jobs, the thing that you forget about those who are on the daily hustle is how much work the hustle itself is. Putting things together, uh, making them yourselves, getting them out yourself, promoting them yourselves. Licking the envelopes, buying the stamps. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So maybe let's just start there about what's going on in your world because you're in Australia 
unexpectedly. Yes. Well, I did expect to come to Australia. I had my ticket booked. I was due to come back for the festival season. Uh, and my, my, my sort of Australia to UK time flipped. I started going to the Edinburgh Fringe and then I sp- spent more and more time around the Edinburgh Fringe and less and less time in Australia until I was just coming back to Australia for the festivals. So I, I packed my suitcase with you know, whatever, six weeks worth of clothes, uh, which for me is like three shirts. <laughs> um, uh, but... Uh, then I got here and it, it it was actually about three days before I flew that the festivals were cancelled and I was faced with this thing of, do I come home? Uh, we were facing down the pandemic. Information was changing every 16 hours. You know, we didn't really know what was going to happen or how it was going to go. So I had the choice of whether to be in the UK and outstay my visa if things got locked down or come back home. And I thought I'd come back home um, because my brother and his wife were also... Uh, due to come back they were moving back and so I ended up back in Australia um, which is an odd thing it was not the plan and Mm. I don't know if it's a good outcome it feels like a good outcome looking at the numbers but my the reason I was in the UK was for work like I'm not there for the weather (laughs) Um, oh you've frozen up hello sorry we lost each other there Hello, I froze up. I was just, I was just going on and on, and I was like, "This is a lot of Alice talking." And <laughs> then I made a little joke, and you didn't laugh. And I thought, "You thought either either Will's dropped out, polite. or he's on that uh, new Amazon show, uh, yep. Last One Laughing, and he's just doing an off-Broadway version of that, <laughs> and he's going to be sued by the good people at Amazon." I must admit that we had been doing quite well. We had a chat off air. Uh, we started the podcast. I was like, oh, good. The connection's fantastic. And then you literally got into your first decent answer and the connection dropped out. So these are the times we now live in. And Not I only about out. the hustle themselves, but uh, dealing with the idea that, gee, Australia would be a good place if we had a national broadband network that actually worked. But anyway, uh, you were saying, Alice, let's have another go. Anyway, so... Yeah, I, I came back here basically and I was a, with three days to, to make the decision of whether I would catch that flight or whether I would stay in the UK and outstay my visa. And I came back and, you know, because I'm <laughs> – it's this odd thing as Australia is opening up again and, and we're sort of looking at maybe having a stand-up scene again. Maybe, who knows what it – you know, uh, but things in the UK are still pretty shut down and look pretty pretty worrying. Um, so I think I made the right decision like I'm not in the UK for the weather. <laughs> was I, that the joke? So yeah, I would have laughed at that. If that was the joke you did last night, I definitely yeah. would have laughed at that. So <laughs> you're right. I def- that, that is proof cool. that the line definitely dropped out. So that idea of stand-up opening up again is something <laughs> that we could probably start with. How do you feel about the idea that we live in a world where, yes, Australia has started to dip its toe back into the idea of opening up society. And stand-up was one of the first things to go out. You know, the festivals all got cancelled. It was one of the first things to go out. And I have a bit of a feeling that it's probably in a general sense, in the sense that we understand at festivals and all those sort of things, one of the last things to come back. Because the very nature of what we do is highly contagious. You know, you're gathering a whole bunch of people in a room often that doesn't have good (laughs) ventilation and then, you know, hoping at best that they will open their mouths and expel fluid, uh, you know, from their mouths at uh, various different rates. So Laughter is both the best medicine and the best disease vector. Mm. 
Well, I would say it's not the best medicine because I've noticed <laughs> that they've put all the best scientists in the world together trying to come up with a vaccine and they have not gathered all the best comedians in the world looking for that perfect routine that will solve the COVID-19 disaster. That so, said, I saw, I've seen some good information spreading uh, in terms of social stuff from comedians, like a particularly good infographic from Baratunde Thurston about the way that masks help uh, so on. But sorry, I interrupted your question. No, my question is simply this, like the idea of it coming back. Talk to me about your personal uh, attitude around the idea of are you desperate to be in front of people again? Are you worried about the idea that we shouldn't be asking people to come out to these things because it's not safe yet? Where do you feel about the idea of not that it's gone away, but the idea of when it comes back? I feel odd about the idea of it coming back. I feel odd about being in Australia for normal stand-up there's you know I don't necessarily feel hugely welcome in the scene here not like unwelcome or, or disliked I have a lot of you know friends and colleagues and I like and admire everyone but I, I, I don't know how much space there is in the Australian comedy scene for the kind of weird stuff that I like to do um, and so I feel strange about kind of being back here and having to maybe prove myself again um, in ways that I got sick of doing. <laughs> uh, can I, well, <sighs> that, that makes sense to me. Why is it that you think that, and I've been having this discussion recently, and I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, I don't think that he will, but with my very dear friend, Justin Hamilton. And I often think that you and Justin Hamilton have a lot in common when it comes to the stuff that you like to make because you're both people who are excellent writers, quite deep thinkers, like to put, you know, themes in there that might not necessarily be immediately recognisable to, you know, the people who are consuming your work and work on those different levels. And he also, you know, has those feelings probably in, you know, different ways. He's at a different time of his life and stage of his career. But the idea of it not being purpose-built for an act like you that's working with the themes and ideas that you're working with, wh why is that and, and where does it fall down? I mean, the argument that I've always sort of made for the UK comedy scene being more open, like there's a couple of things. First of all, they can't read my accent there. So I don't have to prove that I'm not posh. <laughs> you know, I don't have to. <laughs> they just think I sound like Australian, like convict. I'm on the bottom of the heap. Um, so I. <sighs> so there's a. I don't have. That's, that's first out of the gate. Secondly, there is a little bit less sexism. So there's this dual thing when you come on stage as a, as a woman in Australia. Uh, Laura Davis, my friend, puts it like this. You have to tell them in the first 10 seconds why they don't want to fuck you, um, which is maybe exaggerated or maybe not. But I feel certainly in Australia it is encouraged to be a little bit more self-deprecating, um, whereas in the UK they have the BBC, which is paid for by licence fees, so it's not government-funded. The government cannot withdraw the funding and they commissioned for a very long time, say what you like about nepotism, they commissioned really weird university comedy for years, straight out of Cambridge and Oxford, the Monty Python, the Mighty Boosh, Mitchell and Webb, Fry and Laurie, uh, you know, Emma Thompson, uh, Rowan Atkinson, all of these sort of non-commercial propositions made it to mainstream television because of the BBC and the fact that the BBC had money. 
And so I think your average person on the street is more open to different comedy. Yeah, that iconic old comedy boom, you know, Ben Elton, Alexis Sale, you know, Dawn French, That's that seems to have made a massive imprint on the next generations of comedy after that as well. And what is, you know, both acceptable, but also desired by audiences. So in Australia, because this is something that I genuinely believe this is the greatest generation of talent that I've ever seen in Australia. And part of that is just where the industry is. You know, it's grown in my lifetime from running away to join the circus to something people, you know, genuinely choose to do as a career. And not only are there influences like they were when I was a young stand-up comedian, my influences were, you know, Greg Fleet and Anthony Morgan and Judith Lucy and, you know, Sue Ann Post and the Doug Anthony Allstars and, you know, Lano and Woodley, all great influences, but they were my influences because they were the people that I could go down to the local pub and see do stand-up comedy. Whereas, you know, young comedians these days can be as into, you know, Kumail Nanjiani or, you know, Nish Kumar or, you know, they can listen to your stuff from the UK. It doesn't matter about the geographic location of where they're consuming their comedy or where the comedy was made. So they probably have much broader influences and tastes than my generation. But what it has meant is there is this incredible, you know, generation of comedic talent in Australia who don't seem to be getting those big opportunities in what we used to kind of consider the mainstream. Where does that fall down, do you think? Uh, Well, in so many different directions, I guess it falls down. I don't feel like the Australian commissioners of comedy, particularly on mainstream channels, are making room for it or us. They want cheap television they want reality television television is perhaps dying uh, or a lot of a lot of the content is moving to the internet and as a result rather than taking risks they are buckling down and not taking chances and and comedy is inherently risky that's the point of it um it's always on the edge of things it's pushing the boundaries it's expanding the boundaries it's opening up you know cans of worms left right and center and i don't think I don't think they're interested in taking that risk in the way that, you know, stand-up is easier than, for example, theatre because you don't need to get 20 people to sign on. You can just do it yourself. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so we talk about the can of worms aspect of comedy and at the moment there are a lot of debates going on around the comedy industry in general, both the structure of it and whether it's welcoming to different voices in a structural sense. And clearly, I think the stories we're hearing are telling us loud and clear that it has not been and that it is failing in a lot of ways and it needs to genuinely reform itself, much like many other industries, but it's certainly one that that needs to on a whole bunch of different levels. But there's also this other debate that is happening at the moment about the nature of historical comment, uh, comedy and whether, you know, historical comedy is acceptable anymore. The most obvious examples, obviously, being things like uh, the removal of, you know, f- different episodes of Faulty Towers from some streaming services and, um, you know, the taking off of, you know, work that involves blackface and, and some of that. How do you feel about that? I mean, again, I don't expect you to speak, A, for the industry or have a definitive opinion, but I'm interested just in your general thoughts <laughs> around you know comedy and uh i might well i'll start with this i'll offer something first and then 
let you say what you want to say, which is I think comedy at its best is reflective of the times. You know, it's always making a commentary about the times. And that means inherently, as times change and evolve, that comedy that was about those times should seem as old-fashioned as those times were, in a general sense. And I don't think that that is a bad thing. I personally am like, great. It's great that we don't do comedy like that anymore, but also that's what the times were and that's what comedy was and that's a historical sense of what comedy was. And I think perhaps from my point of view and very easy for someone who's not one of the marginalised groups who are being you know, exploited in this sense to say this, but that we look at it and we say, well, that's how things were and it's good that things are not like this now. Uh, we don't need to bury it and pretend it never happened. But I'd love to know what your thoughts are. If, you know, what, what so my, my, my thoughts are mixed. Uh, I, feel, I feel, I think, a little like you do. Comedy, comedy in itself as an art form is a dialectic. You do comedy that's different from the comedy that you see. It's an answer to is that you go back and forth so so you start with uh, take my wife and then someone goes well I'm not going to do take my wife jokes I'm going to do something more sophisticated and someone and it goes back and forth and I feel like all progress is a dialectic all, all progress is this conversation you go back and forth and you and you argue and you re you realize what you believe when you're arguing against something that you see you don't believe and that process is so important and so valid and so valuable that Erasing it feels uncomfortable. It, sort of evaporating it feels uncomfortable. Although I understand that's not necessarily what people are arguing for, but there is an edge to it, and the edge comes from there's this really interesting Jonathan Haidt S A H A I D T um, about the way that university kind of left culture wants to, for example. Uh, take Huckleberry Finn off the syllabus or in fact now uh, in Minnesota I think they want to take uh, To Kill a Mockingbird off the syllabus because it has the n-word in it and you know that's one of the m most sort of profound and fundamental arguments against racism and it was groundbreaking at its time and it's he, he makes this argument that they the belief that underlies it is that if you read a book, the book comes into you and sort of corrupts you or pollutes you or taints you. That, that the idea is if you're bringing this book into your home or into your mind, it has a corrupting influence rather than us traveling into a book as tourists going, oh, this is what it was like in history, having a look around, having a learn, and then we come back to ourselves and we aren't this, this sense of like purity and corruption that makes me very uncomfortable, even in arguments that I generally agree with, if you know what I mean. I do know what you mean. That's an excellent answer. What about when you're making your own work? Where do you generally start? Do you, like, are you starting with an oppositional sense, like you know, that idea of looking at something you don't like and say, well, I don't like that, so I'm going to make something that is not like that? Or is it coming from a place of, I want to make this, and then dealing with the fact that, gee, there's not a lot of other stuff that is like this. Um, absolutely both. So I'll often start a show with, this is a feeling I had. It's a really weird feeling or it's a really weird situation. I don't often feel that. Why did I feel it? How do I get my audience into that place? So that's the positive project. And then there's a bunch of things that I won't do. Like I, won't, I don't talk about my personal relationships uh, on stage. So that cuts a, a thing off. Or often my shows will be like, what did I do last time? 
and where do I feel uncomfortable about it? So Savage was about my mother and then I had this, I don't know, implied criticism that, that well, you, of course you can have an emotional impact on an audience. Everyone has a relationship with a mother. Everyone can imagine that or come with you on that. So the resistance is about my super weird upbringing. It's completely unrelatable. I wanted to see if I could have an emotional impact and bring people with me to this place of, of, of emotion on a story that nobody else in the world has. No one else grew up in a house with, you know, weird sort of refugees with all of their problems and issues and the ceilings falling down and cockroaches coming out of the walls and the floor and like a Holocaust survivor granny with just absolutely no limit on whatever the fuck she wanted to say or do who was rescuing sex workers every Friday night and bringing them home for lasagna. Like, no one that had that. that. And that, so I wanted that to do that. familiar comedy yeah. trope. That hacky, <laughs> that hacky experience. But I like that idea, what you're saying there, which is this idea of something was super relatable. Even though the show about your mother, I think the, the story itself, and Savage is the show that people can currently see on Amazon Prime, I believe. Is that right? Is that, that's, the one yes, that I, yeah. that's the one that I saw uh, you record. Yeah, it's it's brilliant. Yeah, and so, but so it's a specific oh, story about your mother, and the story itself might not be something that everybody's experienced. But you do say, of course, yes, that everybody has some relationship with a mother, regardless of what that relationship is. Whereas the second one is completely unique. What are the challenges? as a comedian, just as a, yeah, I'm talking purely as a comedic sense here of talking about something that is super relatable. Here's something about a parent. Everyone has a parent. That is my point where I can use it to jump off into whatever unique story I want to tell versus that idea of talking about something that is incredibly unique. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that's a very interesting question. I think I don't, I really, really don't like in copying or being cliched in in the way that I, I present ideas I'd like to have something original or interesting to say when it came to the show about mum I, I was also constrained by the fact that I didn't ever want to make fun of her and I know that's a lot of people's you know uh, relationship with their parents is kind of bantering back and forth but I always felt really protective of mum and I knew well she said that she didn't want to be made into a pathetic creature so for me, that was the challenge of the show, finding what was funny about this horrible situation without making light of it, without diminishing how important and serious and hard it was. So it was finding the angles or the observations that that didn't, yeah, didn't make less of it or didn't make light of it. Not that I think that that's the wrong thing to do. I mean, look at Mel, Mel Brooks writing about the, the Holocaust. He did some hilarious shit just, you know making light of that whole experience which was so serious but for me with that show I didn't want to do that and then in terms of like the non-relatable thing it's about describing it well enough that it comes alive for people I think so that that's kind of yeah that's a that's a word challenge uh when you have an idea like that I'm very interested in your process because uh I know that you do a lot of your know, work you know, you're not necessarily one of those people who, you know, goes, well, I've got half an idea. I'll just get up on stage and see what comes to me and see how it falls into shape. That's not, that's probably not am, how you write, is it? I'm not naturally funny at all. I'm not. Like, I, I'm certainly not on stage. I have no, the first time I ever stood up, I was so cringingly bad. I was uh, improv uh, something in O-Week at university 
and I was I can still remember the full body shame prickles of how just devastatingly bad I was at 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 trying to make people laugh and so yes comedy for me is a thing that I've worked at and it's one of the reasons why I I think I got addicted to it was the process of getting better by failing and the 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 thrill of knowing that everything that I've achieved is you know with its fair share of luck everyone has that but it's because I worked for it that's a really nice uh what makes you want to do something so like I I would describe myself as not being necessarily naturally funny either and what I mean by that is that if I'm you know if there's a group of friends around if you if you saw me with a group of my friends at the pub or something like that and you looked at the table you wouldn't go that's the guy who's the comedian you know I'm not (laughs) particularly interested in making people laugh for free uh, it's my job that's why I, if you give me some money don't get me wrong my interest in amusing you goes absolutely through the roof and i'll try my absolute best to do it but until that point it's not but i think that at high school i think that that is something that has changed in my life in that i have gone from being somebody who maybe was considered to be naturally funny to somebody who has become professionally funny and then i have less interest because it's being rewarded in my professional life then when i'm in my non-professional life I don't have the same interest in you know being funny and amusing people but you seem to be telling a different story to that yes no I was not funny in high school I was bullied in high school uh I I, no that's not entirely true actually now that I say it out loud I realize that it's at least somewhat a lie one of the things that I did in school was I would occasionally in class um so one of the forms that girls school bullying takes is cold shouldering pretending that you're not real pretending that you don't exist uh and so saying something in class under my breath that would make people laugh even though they didn't want to and they didn't like me that was a thing that I would occasionally do uh and also in the situations where like it'd be in public or mum would have an accident trying to make things okay for people those were the two sort of situations where I would find myself sort of trying to make people laugh but certainly not in yeah what attracted to me to it originally was that I was bad at it and I wasn't I was too proud as a kid and and I didn't like failing and I thought when I went into university actually that's a really bad quality to have to shy away from failure and run away like run away from failure if I wasn't good at something I would not do it and I wasn't interested in it and I didn't like it uh, and I would only do things that I could prove that I was good at them so comedy was really good for that because you just can't get good except by failing a thousand times but also to choose something where failure is so inherent to the process like because of as we've spoken about the idea that comedy does change so rapidly there's no even sense of getting it right in that you can get it right for a moment in time but that joke that idea that sketch that might have been the most brilliant thing you know in 1960 when it was on television turns out in 2020 is something that people want to burn in a massive fire <laughs> so and we we experience micro levels of that constantly you know the idea that and i imagine coming out of the current you know global pandemic there's going to be topics that we will find when we return to stage that just do not work in the same way for reasons that we can't quite even understand yet (laughs) yeah I can already feel myself if I sit down to write I've got a show coming up on on next up in the UK and I'm sitting down to actually write new material and I can already feel myself cringing away from 
the jokes that I anticipate will be hack. Yeah. Like, it's great to be here. It's great to be anywhere. Or what about Zoom meetings? You know, like... (laughs) Uh, How do you write in that? Because I'm personally, because I am at that stage in my year where I have to start thinking about, you know, what will my show be in 2021? This is normally when I'm starting to think about you know, what it will be and what it will... But that's an incredibly difficult thing to do in the middle of what we're going through right now because the life that we're living, as you've just mentioned, is something that everybody has been living and experiencing, but there is such a great risk that it's also the thing that everybody is going to be talking about and perhaps even the thing that audiences will be completely sick of hearing about by the time we get to speak to them with the extra, I mean, you said you're writing towards some, a project that you know is going to happen, but for the first time in a very long time, I've been, I'm, I've got to sit down and write a show that you're not even 100% sure is going to happen. You know, the, when yeah. Melbourne and Sydney and those festivals got cancelled, everyone already had their shows done. This time we're sitting down to write them thinking, is there a chance that I won't even get, I'll put in all this work to write this new show and then I won't actually get to perform it? Yeah. Well, I'm in a slightly odd position in that I was behind before I came, flew home. I launched this new stupid podcast project at the beginning of the year, which is a daily podcast. So I was just focusing on that and I wasn't gigging as much as I should have been and I got a bit sick and da da da. And, and so I did one preview for this year's Melbourne show that didn't happen. I did one preview. I went up to Glasgow and it was already starting to, like I spent the whole way up going, should I cancel this gig? Is it safe? What are the numbers? Uh, Is it my moral responsibility not to do the gig? The whole thing. So I wrote the whole show on that four hour train journey up in this moment of sort of like anxiety and doubt and fear and uncertainty because no one knew what was happening um, and people were taking it with different levels of seriousness and no governments were really acting on it quite yet, but it looked like they were going to. Um, and I have not yet performed that show properly. So I did that one preview in Glasgow and and that, so I have this kind of show that isn't anything yet, but it's all been written, but it was written on a four-hour train journey, so maybe I should just chuck it in the bin and start again. What is that process? How much of it, how much of it uh, do you look at now and say, this is still a relevant conversation to have with people, and how much of it do you look at it now and say, these things that I was talking <laughs> about aren't relevant anymore? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I find it difficult to, to look at it, actually because it is like so very much a stamp in time. It's a very much a, like a snapshot of a period in time, which is convenient because it's a show about time. It's called Kronos. But yeah, what do I want to do? How do I want to do it? What is stand-up going to be? I, I wonder, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm working a lot online at the moment. I'm doing stuff for my Patreon subscribers and things like that. And yet I really miss that feeling of communicating and watching people, you know, having this great idea that you've worked on and this beautiful turn of phrase or some, you know, perfect encapsulation of something and giving it to an audience and like feeling it in your bones when they get it. That's it's sort of an incomparable feeling and it also teaches you stuff. 
the way they laugh, how they laugh. I spoke to Tim Minchin about this, about the idea of, you know, the stage being the stove, the audience, you know, being the actual, you know, what you're creating, you're not actually creating the show because the show, as you said, is, is written. You could just do that show. The show exists, but the show doesn't really exist without the audience reaction to the show. My argument is almost that the show is actually the audience's reaction to the show. And it's why from night to night in a festival, for example, we talk about having a good show and a bad show. Often when we've done the exact same show, word for word, (laughs) night to night, you know, so the show itself is neither necessarily good nor bad depending on the audience, but the audience reaction is actually what we're creating. Yeah. And, uh, I always think of it, that's a really good way to think of it. I th- I've thought of it as the audience is the canvas. Like the, it doesn't exist without them and they've got a different texture every time and your job is to try and make it look like a similar picture but you're working with a different surface and they are so necessary to the show. Have you, uh, yeah, it's, it, that it, yeah, it doesn't exist without them. It doesn't exist in their absence. Has it made you think differently about comedy itself like about the sort of comedy you want to make about the sort of comedy you think people will want to see about the ideas that you want to talk about or is it the sort of thing that continues it reinforces the sort of ideas that you were already pursuing I think it reinforces the ideas that I was pursuing I think when I say it I mean being in lockdown watching the way that discourse is happening on the internet and the way that people's thinking seems to have sort of shifted not just what they think but how they approach thinking things and at this at the, at the same time as as being disheartening it you know, my whole it's made me realize that I have a project maybe other than the delight of sharing ideas that I have this project which is to make people feel more human and to make people understand the humanity of the people around them. Does that sound really wishy-washy? I like it. I I mean, yes, of course. Yeah, it sounds wishy-washy. No doubt it sounds wishy-washy, but it sounds wishy-washy in the right way, not in the wrong way. Uh, I was saying to someone the other day, I live in a particularly um, woo-woo area of Australia now and... uh, you know, the sort of place where people might not take the COVID vaccine even when there is one. <laughs> and <laughs> so I was talking about how my logical mind, the mind that I have that, you know, tends to veer towards truth and the the trust of, you know, facts and science versus my affinity that I have for a little woo-woo. I don't mind a little woo-woo. I don't mind a little wishy-washy. I think the world is better with those things. But you spoke about the idea of, online discourse can you talk a little bit more about that and what you have noticed and what you feel uh, about where the state of our online discourse is yes there's some obvious observations that everyone is has made is making that people are trying to point score that there's a gamification of things so that your momentary satisfaction in making a point is more important than whether you're actually persuading anyone of anything whether you're actually engaging with anyone whether you're actually changing the world rather than just doing some sort of you know peacock display of your shiny breast feathers there's that's all kind of obvious the thing that I think is less obvious but more scary maybe is 
how we're pro programming ourselves that 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 you can now have a, a piece of information that is freely available that two people can see and and understand like wildly differently because they're living in different fact scenarios like it I've always thought of myself as a kind of a free speech fundamentalist, like somebody who really believes in in the value of free speech, even when speech is harmful, even when it can be harmful. I'm always like, you know, short of, of an incitement to violence, it's worth protecting that right. And the harms that come from people saying horrible things are outweighed by the, the value of protecting that right. And then I I, I think about the fact that my idea of free speech is predicated on uh, like the open forum idea that we're in an open marketplace and you speak and everyone can hear you and argue with you and everyone has an equal voice and equal opportunity to, to speak. Obviously that's an illusion, but as an idea, that's a nice idea. But the reality is everyone's living in like an algorithmically enforced propaganda state and that we've, we've sort of created it ourselves and we've we've programmed ourselves and the information we get and, and we're not in an open forum, we're not in a free free market and so you just get people running in different directions. There's no discourse. They're not talking to each other. They're not actually talking to each other and I find it really upsetting. Sorry, I, I get really head up about it because it's, it's really devastating um, to my understanding of how any progress can be made. And so this then becomes the most difficult question. If what you're saying is true, and I, you know, uh, in the most general sense, subscribe to everything that you've just said. You know, I also believe that, you know, the, the free exchange of ideas is absolutely important. And I also absolutely agree with what you say, that it is not an equal exchange of ideas. And I think the biggest thing that we have overlooked is the fact that we are constantly being influenced by the technology we've created in ways that we just don't understand. And we don't have the capacity to understand because giant organizations and giant algorithms are working so hard every day to influence our behavior. And we just don't have the time or capacity to understand every single time how we're being influenced. So if that is true let's just start with the idea that that is true to explore this next idea what happens next because we have some major issues facing the world and they're issues that we can't deal with in the current environment and how we understand and then act on information i don't know i it it feels and i don't know if this is something that every generation feels but it feels like it's it's gone too far like it's pulled the ladder up behind it in terms of what it's done to the way we think and the way we engage with each other and I don't even think it was intentional that's sort of the worst part I don't even think that there was a sinister motive other than making money I'll give you a really good example and this is an example from a friend of mine so I haven't checked it out so it might be absolute bullshit but I think it's a good one so <laughs> appropriate to this conversation <laughs> it proves the point you're trying to make so let's run with it anyway let's run with it anyway so here's the thing um he works in AI and and one of the things he talks about is these um bots which have some element of artificial learning these bots online they're twitter bots and their whole job is to get enough engagement and followers 
that uh, they can be then sold on to advertisers or political campaigns. So they're not sentient, they're just little bots and they just interact online with things that look enough like human speech that people will engage with them. And if they say something nice to a woman or a man online, they will get very little engagement. They might get an, oh, thanks. Uh, or maybe someone follows them, whatever. If they some say something mean to a man, they'll get a few engagements. If they say something to mean to a woman who has more than a certain number of followers, they will get hundreds of people rushing to the defense of that woman. How dare you say this to this woman? You know, she's a lovely person, whatever it is, death threat, rape threat, something horrendous. So it's a really good impulse in humanity that creates this incentive for the bot. All the bot understands is that it is an incentive and so without anyone intending it, if I get more than 25,000 followers on Twitter, robots will tell me to kill myself. How is that the world we live in? It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the news media has been so influenced by this idea of what engagement means. So a lot of the tabloids in particular, but I think probably pretty much across the industry, you just see it most at the tabloid end of it, have uh, no way of differentiate differentiating types of engagement so if you write an article a clickbait style article and there are a hundred people who disagree and five people who agree that is as valuable as a hundred people who agree and five people who disagree it, it, it's the <laughs> level of engagement itself yeah that is important to them so there is an incentive in even just changing the way that news stories are presented so that they will by their very nature, get the most engagement. Yeah, the, one of the things that I talked about a lot in my last year's show, which was Mythos, uh, was about how we privilege measurable things over intangible things that are much more important. And it was one of those things, you know, one of those projects of the show was to communicate this idea that we will value the thing that we can measure and it goes through everything. You know, science is theoretically driven purely by reason and rationality, but it's also driven by the tools that we have. There are, you know, there, we've gone down wrong paths simply because there was something that was easy to measure. Cholesterol was something like that. We can measure it, and so it must be important. You know, we know how cancer looks on a microscope. <laughs> we do not know how it smells, although it might be a lot easier to smell it if we had proper, you know, whatever that happens to be. And in the same way, we value we value money more than we value happiness even if we don't even if we all agree that you know happiness is very important one thing is measurable and the other thing is not measurable we don't have a good measurement for it even though it's more important and so putting that into the show I did it in the form of a dick joke which I I thought you might enjoy um but trying to get that idea across in the show was important um for me because I think it's one of the things that's going wrong. These metrics and measurables are leading us down a path that nobody would want. No one wants that. No one wants this world. So how does it change? How do we get from where we are right now to a place where we do have a world that looks a little bit more like the world that we desire, or at least the world that the majority of us desire? Because at the moment, it seems that the world we have certainly can be very rewarding for those who are at the top of the world but there is a disproportionate you know gap between those who are at the top of the system and those who 
you know, increasingly all of us who are not at the top of the system, if we're not one of the, you know, 50 <laughs> families who are at the top of the system, we're, yes. we're one of the rest of the people these days. And in a world where if you look at historically, there was there's always been a difference. And this is what people will say to you. Well, there's always been lords and serfs and there's always been haves and haves nots throughout history. My argument would be, and this is overly simplistic, my, my argument would be that in the past... That was perhaps due to a scarcity of there being enough for everybody. Now, I'm sure that there are examples where that is not the case, but the idea being there is not enough for everybody in society, therefore the privileged people have some of it and some people don't. Whereas we live in a world now where on pretty much every measurement, we have the capacity for almost everyone to have enough. Yet we have never lived in a time where so few people have everything and everybody else doesn't have much. So... Uh, again, this is a big question. How do we fix the world? But I feel like in the middle of what we've just gone through, a worldwide opportunity to have a look at what was working and what wasn't working, an opportunity to see how some of the structures that we relied on and believed in so much have failed us in completely incredible ways. If we're ever going to fix any of this stuff, if we're ever going to have a reset and say, hey, we can't just keep going in this direction because this isn't working for many people that time is now. So I don't expect you to solve it, but I'd like like your opinion on on perhaps how you think we could, you know, see a better world. Do you have any hope that out of what we've just been through that we will come out of it in a better world than the world we went into it? I would like to hope that. I I I do hope that. I don't know how much I believe that's likely, but you know, so many people what am, what am I trying to say? Education, I think. I think what I'm trying to say, education. What we need now is for people to have critical skills about how to deal with the information they get online because I think that is the fundamental problem here is people don't know how to... People don't understand how it works, how this information is being presented to them, why it's being presented to them, how to assess how how reputable or valuable it is. And so you have lies and fallacies and even good people using these really like ham-fisted, manipulative and false methods to bring people to their side a, 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 sh a shallowing out of the way that that any kind of allegiance or affiliation or loyalty works um i i, I don't know I'm, I'm obsessive about education i feel like it has to be part of it they, they, they did this study at stanford recently about the fact that if you give people uh, uh tips on how to spot false information they are better at spotting false information I think it's for about like three weeks and then they fall back into their habits. So we need to integrate that kind of, you know, here's what you got to watch out for, here's how you need to check. But again, I'm not sure if we've gone too far to the point where people would mistrust the tips. <laughs> 
I know. I mean, that's the point, right? Of course, Stanford would say that. Bloody Stanford. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course, bad headlines are in Comic Sans. You would say that, you classist fucks. Yeah, you elites. <laughs> uh, okay. You are someone who has actually created their own you know, alternative world. Uh, you know, you have a podcast, The Last Post, which for those who have not listened to it yet, I do highly recommend it. But please explain. I mean, you're brilliant on people, it, so of course you would highly recommend uh, it. Yes, that's the reason why. I, I'm recommending it because it's something where I was good. Thank you, Alice. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, that's why I recommend everything that I've been on. Uh, so... No, um, it was actually a very challenging thing to do. I said this to you when I did it. I found it actually an incredibly confronting and challenging comedic um, process to try to A, wrap my head around what it is that you needed from me for your show and then what it is that I could then present for the show. So explain to people the conceit of the show first before we talk about the micro level of actually how it all works. So the conceit of the show is that every morning I get an email that contains a satirical news podcast um, from an alternate dimension. So that there is an Alice Fraser there who is covering the news much in the way that I would on The Bugle or Andy Zaltzman would or you would. <coughs> but I, you know, it just comes from this alternate dimension where there's a lot of things that are similar and a lot of things that are really different. Um, and it's about 10 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day. And it's utterly ridiculous. And so why why that? Why was the, I mean, yeah, yet another one of those. <laughs> Sorry, why, I was yet another joking. one of those. And then I realized that I had chili. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another one spicy of those tea. <laughs> spicy tea, is that what you were? You were choking on your own tea. <laughs> See, I, I, I enjoy the fact tea. that you, someone who, you know, doesn't pollute your body with anything terrible, you know tease your vice i'm here you know sitting in my <laughs> office uh, yeah and the great thing about being able to do it over the internet is that i can smoke while i do the interview like some old school <laughs> 60s interviewer with a glass of scotch and smoking as i do it and i'm glad that it's you who coughed and not i which proves that i believe in this new world tea is worse for you than cigarettes so <laughs> that's how it works now no why yep causation I mean, is correlation let's do it uh, this is one of these typical Alice Fraser hack ideas that everybody's doing, you know, uh, a daily satirical podcast from a different dimension. So what was it about that idea that appealed to you? And then how did you manage to lasso the idea? Because the idea of going into an alternative dimension, yeah, sure, we all kind of understand that. Even anyone who's seen a Marvel movie understands the idea of what an alternative dimension <laughs> might be these days. But then... How do you create satire in a world that doesn't exist? Because for satire, a lot of the time, you start with a real-life thing and then the satirical element is what you do with that real-life thing. Whereas you're creating a world that is slightly based on our world but not our world and then trying to create satire within that world. Now, some people would argue you're making it hard on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I am and I am I'm also pursuing something that I'm interested in so like I grew up reading trashy fantasy and sci-fi it was my escape from the hardships of my life and from school and all of that stuff and I've never really been able to use it and so having this alternate universe 
I get to have, you know, a, a dragon as the prime minister of of the United Kingdom, uh, currently in transition. He got he's a he's a wear dragon at the moment. Don't don't ask. I get to have all of those. You know, I get to have octopus people who are sort of sinister and maybe want to eat us, but maybe they're quite nice. We're not sure. I get to have all of those sort of fun play elements, and that's what's attractive about it. The other thing is, I didn't start doing news satire on purpose. It's not part of my normal stand-up. I did it because people kept offering me opportunities to do it. I don't actually like the news. I find it really upsetting and really depressing. And writing jokes about Trump for the 452nd time was getting on my nerves. It's like if I have to write another fucking Brexit joke, I will scream. So having this alternate universe lets me deal with the thing about the news that I do find interesting, which is that the news is telling you a story. The stories it chooses, the the facts it gives you, the way it delivers that information is a story in itself. So being able to step out of this universe, it's kind of a, a satire about the way that the news works. It takes you away from the reality and the urgency of it being real and go and, and starts to be about a satire about the news, a news satire in the way that it's a satire about the news. How does a story work? How do they tell? What kind of stories happen? Why why are things important in the news? What do they tell you? How do they tell it to you? And then it also gives you a little bit of distance on issues uh, that are happening in real life. What is the challenge for guests that you have on the show? Explain to people who haven't well even I think to people who have heard the podcast because I think they would be interested in how it is that you pitch the idea to people who appear on the show and then what they bring to the show in return <laughs> well so you were very good you did um, a lot of you like called me up the day before and talked through it and were very like diligent and careful I think there's a, a few people who've come on <laughs> yeah but like I was like this is how you get to be successful in this industry for 21 years is by doing the work and I was very impressed uh, but I I tell you that you can be anything you want in this universe so you can come on the podcast with a character you're you're a, you are existing in the alternate universe as a billionaire or as an ad commando or as a flapjack heiress or something you have a persona and you come in and you you talk about the news that that your persona is an expert on basically I've, i found it incredibly challenging it was one of the hardest things that i have done for a very long time i must say and part of the reason i did it was really that um i thought it was only fair i've asked you to do things for me and i thought it was only fair <laughs> that if you asked me to do something for you i should do it in return but i did I, you know, I listened to a lot of it. I'd already listened to, you know, bits and pieces, but I hadn't, you know, had the opportunity to listen to it all. And then I went through and you recommended a few people who you thought were good examples of what worked best. And I went and listened to all of those episodes, but then I tried to get a real sense of what the universe itself was. And I found it a confronting thing. A, because I don't really do character comedy in general. Like what you tend to see with my form of comedy is it's just me. It might be a different version yeah. of me depending on what the project is, or but it's generally my perspective and my worldview and it's really all that I know how to do. So the idea that I had to create something, I created something that was not too far 
away from me. I decided to go to a point in my life, the life where I started doing Gruen, and instead of me becoming ever more cynical about the nature of advertising and its role in our society, <laughs> which is what has happened in real life over the last 12 years, to the point where I may argue at some stage that it is perhaps the most destructive force, force in the history of our world. And I genuinely probably believe that to be true. I haven't really put my full thoughts on that out on the public record because it's hard to get people in the advertising industry on your show when you're, when you're really <laughs> leaning into that idea. So there's a practical constraint. Well, every, in your world. Every day on the last post, I, I do the ad section and that is as brutal an indictment of... of capitalism and the advertising industry as I can as I can manage every time um but you yeah you did come on you came on as as this character I thought you did a brilliant job but it was like you know it's like all satire you take reality and you just turn it 90 degrees I'm not particularly good at character comedy either I'm not a very good actor um but I do like the silliness of it I like the way that it frees you from from everything I, I, like, I don't think it's a particularly mainstream idea. Like, it's a really dumb idea. I, I don't know why I'm doing it. Well, it has a very, you say it's not a very mainstream idea, but it has a very uh, loyal and strong following from what I can see in the correspondence that I've got from appearing on it, but also the people that hit me up in my Patreon. <laughs> so I'm going to just go on my limited measurables, Alice, and say that it is popular. Haven't seen the actual download numbers, but I'm going to say it's very popular. Uh, but yes, it's incredibly niche also. And I did find because my character became someone who loved advertising instead of hated it. And that was basically, like you said, the only, I just went on a complete 90 degrees of what if instead of making me hate advertising more, this had made me just embrace and love advertising and went in that direction. And I must admit that person is so much happier than I am. That person who sees <laughs> opportunities to make money uh, and to advertise in every potential thing that happens is such a freeing way to look at the world compared to the weight that I carry around on my shoulders constantly. He's like you without shame or guilt. I know. It's fun. I don't know what I would do without all this shame and guilt. I just feel so light all the time. Uh, okay, so... We've spoken a, a lot about um, comedy, um, and we've already talked for an hour, and I'm, I'm you know, cognizant of the the time. So I want to talk about you personally, if we could. Just how have you personally dealt with the idea of quarantine? How have you personally dealt with the idea that you know suddenly you're stuck somewhere? You know, I mean, we say stuck in the the most generous of ways, but you're in Australia, not in the UK where you have been, you know, building an excellent career and ha have those opportunities to do the work that you try to do. Just for Alice Fraser, the person, what have these times been like and what have you learned about yourself? It was a real shock to the system. I have spent a lot of my life staying busy um, to avoid other things. Um, being busy and, and being sort of on my way somewhere is a very nice addictive thing um, and it makes you feel like you're productive and useful and therefore have value. Um, the first two weeks when I came back and was in solo quarantine were hard, manageable but hard. I 
normally I would get up and go out. That's the first thing I do in the day is I would leave the house. So not being able to leave the house, not not being able to touch people or have human contact um, was hard. That's a thing that's valuable to me is is having people around me and having that kind of unspoken communication of just, you know, nudging your shoulder against someone or, or yeah, just the presence of other people. Yeah, I found it hard. I found it really hard. And it did. On the other hand, I think it's also a good thing in kind of a social sense. I think a lot of people have been reassessing what's important to them. And I hope that'll last after things open up again. I know a lot of people who someone, one, one partner has lost their job and they've had to, you know, downgrade their lifestyle. But the one who's lost their job is now looking after the kids and they're all at home. One of them's working from home. One of them's looking after the kids and they are so much happier than when they had literally twice as much money. That's nice. I think that's really nice. I hope it, you know, I hope it lasts. I hope people don't forget it. I have had a horrible, you know, realisation, and it is a horrible realisation, which is I've gone from, you know, being overemployed to being, you know, completely unemployed for the first time in nearly a quarter of a century, and I love it. I mean... You know, my bank manager doesn't love it. And the fact that I have to pay a mortgage doesn't love it. And I'm spending money that I don't have at the moment. And that bit of it, you know, all the realities of life aspect of it, there is a huge, you know, kind of overwhelming sort of looming darkness that at some stage future me is going to have to deal with. But current me that is not doing all those things has really enjoyed just staying at home and not having to go and do the things that I normally have to do in my life. And I have to work out how I balance those two feelings when, you know, the world opens up again and whether I end up filling my schedule in the way that it was filled before we went into what we went into. Right now, it's great. Right now, I'm with my dad. I'm with my twin brother, his wife, their baby. It's a beautiful, like, little family thing with all of the, like, insanely infuriating elements that family has. Uh, My dad's absolute willingness to walk into your room at any hour of the day or night to talk about an idea that he just had or ask a question about how, what this email means... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I love my dad so much <laughs> but that's a stressful thing yeah so that's all nice and fun yeah but it does feel a little bit like stepping back in time what's the thing you've missed the most what's the thing that you are most desperate to be able to do again hmm. two things uh having tea with friends and and being able to freely offer hospitality to people. Come over, my house is your house. Just come over anytime. If you've got a problem or if you need a, a hand or I'll meet you for a cup of tea, we can talk about it. I miss that a lot. What, what is it that you're getting out of that? That's a you know nice, I would say, a nice natural human instinct, but it's not necessarily an instinct that is shared by all of humanity. What is it that you get out of the kindness to others? I I know during this time, 
And by the way, kindness to others, I think when we speak about this, it runs the risk often of it sounding like that you always have the capacity for kindness. And I'll speak from my own personal point of view, is that there are plenty of times where I disappoint myself by not you know, extending the sort of kindness that I would like to know myself by. And, you know, there have been plenty of those times and it's a constant process to offer kindness to others, you know, naturally and instinctively and generously. And, you know, uh, and so when we talk about this, I don't mean to say uh, create an environment where you have to speak as if this is your natural instinct all the time. Because I think that is a <laughs> horrible thing to put on any, any single person and sets you up for the times where you can't fulfill the level um, of being there for others that you want to be. But what is it about being there for others that rewards you? So my granny was wildly generous and my mum had this infinite capacity for caring about other people. When people came in and she was lying on her deathbed in horrible pain, in a really grotesque situation, people would walk into her hospital room and her first reaction was, oh, how are you? Like, and, and then she'd remember her, their grandkids' names and the whole thing, like, th those two examples, I think, were important. I grew up in a household where we always had someone in the spare room or living upstairs for weeks or months or, in some instances, years. That, And that went away as mum got sicker. So for me, it's, a, it's something that is worth having and worth fighting for and is... It, it just yeah when when that started to go away from my life I would have been in my teens and I remember making a really strong determination that when I was an adult and when I had resources and I would that would be a thing that I could do and it would make me happy to be able to do that um also you know, I, I'm, I am maybe not very um secure in myself I don't necessarily know who I am unless I there's somebody else in the room. <laughs> no, that's a lie. I don't know why I would say that. I well, I don't know. There's something about other people that that m makes me feel um, like if other people are happy, it makes me feel happy. I'm not sure if I know how to be happy. I know how other people are happy, and that makes me happy. I'm not articulating this well. There's something about other people being happy that makes me happy. I think you've articulated it very well and I enjoyed the struggle along the way and I appreciate the fact that you, you know, checked your own lie because it's so often we say things. <laughs> like I've been one of the things that, I, again, I hope that I take into, you know, whatever the new normal ends up being is the idea of just being truthful about what I think, you know, about how I am reacting to things, that there is no great advantage to pretending that things are otherwise to what they are. And we live in a world where we create things. And of course we pretend and there's a nature of storytelling and pretense that is involved in any narrative in that regard. But in my real life, in the way that I express my ideas, what was it that made you lie in the first place then? And then what was it that made you check yourself and, and uh, you know, reframe that in a different way? Because, uh, first of all, the idea that I was trying to articulate f felt very visceral and difficult to wrap up in words. The idea of, of when, yeah, of empathy, I guess, really 
maybe too much empathy that that other people's sadness makes you sad even if they should be sad um other people's discomfort makes you uncomfortable even if they should be uncomfortable i've had to call people out for bad behavior and it is one of the worst feelings in the world like no you know so that's a thing that's a part of me it feels like a flaw so i i leapt to articulate that flaw and then realized that i was being lazy in the way i was thinking about it and i was sort of almost pathologizing myself as a simple out that's why i called myself on the lie because it's not i don't think it's pathological it but it is it's a it is a flaw or potential flaw it's a strong characteristic that i don't really have a lot of control over that can really damage my life what is it that brings you joy when other people aren't involved what's the thing that brings you the most joy that doesn't involve the happiness or affirmation or response of somebody else uh stories books and just real physical pleasures going for a swim in cold water and when you come out and your skin is buzzing um that kind of thing are you reading reading do you listen to books what's your process for books these days do you still like to feel the pages on your hand do you read on some sort of technology do you listen to books do you do some combination of all those things yes all of those things i i love a book in my hands but i travel so much that buying books isn't really useful so i'll only buy books if i think i can give them to somebody else so they have to be good books i will buy a whole lot of fucking garbage to read on my kindle because no one will ever see the covers of it and i go through about one of those a day at this point um and i will listen to a book while going for a walk although i, I i've been doing that a lot less um there are there are a lot of episodes of podcasts stacked up on my phone because i i realized that i wasn't really ever alone with my own thoughts um and that the idea of being alone with my own thoughts was making me fretful. So I, I've decided that at least some of my walking will be done with nothing in my ears, which shouldn't sound as revolutionary as it does, but it does to me. Uh, I think it sounds not only revolutionary, but uh, you know, entirely confronting. I understand that. I don't necessarily think that I consciously am like, I don't want to be alone with my own thoughts. And I think actually most of the time when I am alone with my own thoughts, I'm rewarded by that process but what i had noticed was that through making a series of unconscious choices i had left myself with barely any time where i was alone with my own thoughts and particularly in the circumstance that i'm currently in where it's just been amy and i together constantly and so i've been doing some podcasts and i'm very aware that when i'm doing a podcast that's me still having a conversation with somebody else but that's her alone in the house not having a conversation with anybody else so then carving out extra time to just be alone with your own thoughts almost feels quite selfish sometimes and i noticed that when i was having that alone time i would always have a podcast in my ear and realize i'm just not having any time at all that my instinct immediately would be put something in your ear. If you if you're going to garden, put something in your ear. If you're going to mow the lawns, put something in your ear. If you're walking the dogs, put something in your ear. And I realised that I had completely excluded the idea of being alone with my thoughts. Um, you know, almost entirely out of 
my life and I've been making a very conscious effort to uh, have some time alone with my thoughts and yet the thing that then overwhelms me with that is the idea of all this, I guess it's FOMO, information FOMO, right? The idea that those podcasts are stacking up in your feed suddenly becomes some weight of like, I have to get through these podcasts. I mean, of course, that's an irrational thing in that there's no compulsion for me to listen. I'm choosing to listen to those podcasts, whether I listen to them or not. They will exist regardless. There's not going to be a test at the end whether I listen to them or not. However, I still feel that weight carried around like I've got to get to this homework. I've got to get to these things that I haven't listened to. Why are you wasting this hour just alone in your own head? Yeah, I, I totally understand that. I, For me, the big like moment of decision or moment of realization was um, I was listening to an audiobook to go to sleep. And I, you know, they've got a great setting where you listen, it, it shuts itself off after 15 minutes or half an hour or whatever it is. And if I didn't have it, I would dwell on sad things and bad things and I wouldn't be able to sleep. I would go into all of the regrets uh, that you go into when, you, when you're going to sleep or th those moments and the dread and what am I doing with my life and am I, you know, all of those questions that you have were coming in then. And I thought, I'm avoiding thinking about these things. This is the only time that these thoughts can come at me. You know, and I wasn't doing the things that I know work, like meditating. Um, that's my dad calling on the phone and also calling me on the thing. I'm going to buzz him in one moment. Yeah, you do that. It's okay. We're going to finish soon. <laughs> we're going to uh, wrap this up. But I want to ask you a couple more questions before we go. So it's been actually quite a long time. You were one of, uh, you know, I don't know where it was in the original philosophy episodes. If I was a more professional broadcaster or if I had a team of people who helped me do this podcast, I would know what episode it was of philosophy that you did. But I know it was reasonably early on while I was doing this podcast. And so I bet there was a couple of questions that I did not ask you the first time around when you did it. So I'm going to ask those questions to you now. If you could have one skill, it can be anything. It could be a, um, but it's something that somebody else has. If you could have that skill, what is that skill? Who is the person whose skill that you would, you know, just like to have? And by the way, you don't have to learn it. It's not like, you know, you're like, if you, you want to sing like Mariah Carey, you don't have to go to, you know, 12 years of singing lessons. And I'm going to, you know, this is, you know, a magic wand. You get this ability overnight without any of the uh, turmoil and pain and persistence you need to actually learn how to do it. Oh, that's such a good question. Um I would be able to do like, it would be an art. It would have to be an art form. Like d dancing, like being a really good dancer. Like those people who can just sort of express things. What sort of dancing? Who Like w what style of dancing? If you were going to be the best dancer in the world in some style of dancing, what, what style of dancing most appeals to you to be really good at? To be honest, like stunt stunt dancing, like stunt fighting dancing, like Shaolin Temple, like oh, Jet yeah, Li, okay. uh, Jackie Chan, just like flipping and jumping and just you doing 
amazing things with your body. I think that would be the thing that I would want. <laughs> Such a useless skill. Uh, if here's a question, I here's a question I don't norm, normally ask. No, that, that's a brilliant answer. I absolutely love it. Um, I've never asked this question before, but I'm very interested in it because the skill you have is something that you could incorporate into your current career <laughs> if you had the skill. Yeah. If you had the skill to you know dance like stunt dance. Would you be, do you think, a professional stunt dancer? So you are granted that skill overnight now. So you're Alice Fraser, the comedian, broadcaster, podcaster, etc., writer, he, right now. That, that is the, the life you're living. And in my alternative universe, see, two people can play this game, Alice. I'm creating an alternative universe where you also just wake up tomorrow and you have the skill to do that sort of dancing. Do you stop doing comedy? to pursue a career in that style of dancing? Do you incorporate that style of dancing somehow into the comedy that you're making or take comedy to that particular, you know, area of skill? Or do you just keep it as something that it's fun for you to do, but you don't actually do it professionally? What, what would you do if you had that skill overnight? I would do a show that was exactly like a classic Alice Fraser show uh, with all of the ups and downs. And then like with 15 minutes to go, 12 men clad in black would drop from the ceiling and we'd have an extended fight scene. <laughs> I think that'd have to be one of those shows where you're just like, don't, at the end you'd have to do a little speech to the audience going, don't spoil the ending. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about the first 45 minutes as much as you want, but please do not spoil this great reveal. I've always uh, said I wanted to do a show where I just fall over on banana skins for an hour. There was a brilliant comedian out of Portland, and I, I am, I hate the fact that I can't immediately recall his name. But he recently, um, unfortunately, he's no longer with us. I know that's a euphemism, but because of the manner of his death and the, the fact that I just want to tell this story affectionately, that's what I'm going to go with. And uh, he had an act. I only ever met him once. And I did not see him do this act, but I saw him be incredibly brilliant. Just one of those natural <laughs> comedians who was doing stuff on stage where you're like, I'm not even sure why this is funny, but this is 100% identifiable as being funny. And one yeah. of his most famous routines that I was later told about and was celebrated, you know, uh, upon his death was he used to open a 45 minute set by eating a banana and then dropping the skin on the ground. And then he would end his set by going to walk off and slipping on the banana peel. And to Amazing. me, it, that's just a brilliant, like, what a great comment on the history of comedy, but also the nature of comedy. I love it. Uh, you know, it's just a beautiful setup and callback. Yeah, anyway, delightful. Oh, uh, what a delight. Last but not least, uh, you have a time machine. Well, I have a time machine, technically. I am the person who has the keys to this time machine. And the mm -hmm. only rule that I have with the time machine is you get one round trip. So you can go to uh, any moment in history. You can uh, go to a moment in your own life. You can affect it. You can observe it. There is no real limitations uh, on what it is that you can and can't do. What I am going to rule out is you don't need to go back and kill baby Hitler or any of those sort of things. I have a time machine. If I need someone to kill baby Hitler, if even that is a good idea, uh, then I'm going to send back somebody who has better skills at killing people. I'm going to find <laughs> I'm going to find someone who doesn't mind murdering a baby and send them back to do that job. I'm not going to send Alice Fraser back to do that job. So let's take. What you that need stuff. for that job is Adult Hitler. 
Yeah, I'm going to get adult Hitler. I'm going to travel back in time and get adult Hitler to travel back in time and kill baby Hitler. <laughs> it's the only humane way to do it. And then it's such a conundrum, isn't it? Because Hitler's also then the person who killed Hitler. And you've got to admire him for that. So, But he was the man who did kill I Hitler. I know, technically he was, but yeah, too late is my argument. <laughs> no point the killing right him idea. at the point he killed him. He's got to kill him at the point. He's got to kill him early on. Yeah. I say, so the mate, same as comedy. It's all a matter of timing. Adolf, you eventually get to this, mate. I'm not even making you do something that you're not already clearly on the table to do. <laughs> I'm just saying, can we accelerate the timeline forward? <laughs> so all that stuff off the table. You don't have to okay. fix the world, world in this. This is about you and what you want to do and what you're most curious about. So what do you do? Oh, wow. Um. That's a hard question. That's a really hard question because obviously there are... That's why I save it to the end. I think I would like to meet my mum before she got sick. Um, I think that would be interesting because I never knew her when she wasn't. Would you tell her? Would you tell... like So in this fictional universe, and that's a beautiful answer, by the way, um, if you got to travel back, would you just introduce yourself as a stranger or would you introduce yourself as who you actually are and tell her how would you if she's not sick when you meet her sorry this might be a confronting thing to ask somebody now that I realize I'm about to ask it but you meet her when she's not sick Mm. and you realize that if you're going to introduce and say who you really are that you're also going to have to tell her that she's going to be sick are you telling her do you let her know what is coming or is it just about having that moment and that interaction with none of that on the table? I would tell her, I wouldn't tell her that she was going to get sick. I would tell her that she was a very good mother. I would tell her who I was. And, you know, she was very good at saying how proud she was of us. And I would I would tell her more uh, of about how proud we were of her. It's a beautiful answer. Thank you so much. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. The Patreon people were right. You were a good person to get back on the podcast. Uh, I knew that you would be also, and I appreciate greatly that you've taken the time to do it. Your podcast is called The Last Post, um, and it is on the Bugle, presented by the Bugle. And, of course, people can hear you regularly on the Bugle as well with uh, Andy Zaltzman, and that's an excellent podcast as well. I highly recommend that. For We talked about the idea of not, you know, constantly having podcasts in our ears, but I do realise the irony is we also are on a <laughs> podcast, and it is in my best interest if you constantly have podcasts in your ears. So take none of our advice on board <laughs> and listen to more podcasts. That's what I'm actually saying. Uh, what else would you like to plug? Um, my, I, I have a podcast comes out every week. You've been on it. It's called Tea with Alice, um, and it's where I talk about difficult ideas with interesting people. Uh, Savage and its sequel, The Resistance, are on Amazon Prime, or you can find all of my stuff via my Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Alice Fraser. The Resistance is also on Amazon Prime. So here's a thing that happened with The Resistance, and I'm not sure if I should say this uh, publicly, but it went... It was commissioned by the ABC. I filmed it. It went up on the ABC. Then it went on Next Up in the UK and they sold it on to Amazon. So it's on Amazon Prime in some regions. And it was, even though it's the sequel to Savage, it was recorded a lot earlier and has been available there. They paid me uh, £500 for that and they paid me 
25,000 Australian dollars for Savage. Which is about the same, I think, <laughs> with the exchange rate. So. But, like, isn't that ridiculous? Like, isn't that completely bananas? Well, it, absolutely it is, but it's a, that is also the nature of what we do because you did a one-hour comedy special on an internet streaming service that goes worldwide and Dave Chappelle did too and he got, you know, $50 million <laughs> or whatever for years. So, you know, <laughs> turns out yeah. you're not just getting paid I per joke so. for the hour. It is, it is a little uh, not equal in that respect. Uh, so thank you so much for doing this. I genuinely appreciate it. And, uh, um, yeah, it's been it's been an absolute cracker. Thank you. Uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you, Will, and I'll talk to you again soon. 